we are on this planet together. We don't really have many choices. We have to learn how to work together. We have to learn to, as I say, turn toward each other instead of turn on each other. And breaking is about turning on each other. Bridging is about turning toward each other. Welcome to today's episode of a new sub-series of the podcast, Who Belongs? The Othering and Belonging Institute, with financial support from the Annie E. Casey Foundation, is developing a series of podcasts to capture examples of bridging to belonging. We want a world where everyone belongs. So how do we get there? The answer, bridging. Throughout the series, we will talk to leaders implementing bridging work and individuals who have experienced their bridging transformation. My name is Miriam Magaña Lopez, and I will be hosting today's episode. Today, we will be speaking with UC Berkeley professor, John Powell. John Powell is an internationally recognized expert in the areas of civil rights, civil liberties, structural racism, housing, poverty, democracy, and othering, bridging, and belonging frameworks, which he has been critical in developing and translating between academia and fields of practice. Professor Powell is also the director of the Othering and Belonging Institute. Today, Professor Powell will share with us his experience utilizing the frameworks I mentioned, othering, belonging, and bridging, and break down their definitions. This episode will allow us to develop a shared vocabulary to discuss these frameworks in more detail and in different contexts. To begin our conversation, what led you to begin thinking about uh, othering, belonging, and bridging frameworks? Well, the othering and belonging, um, that came out of the work we're doing at the Institute when I first came to Berkeley. Uh, it was not called the Othering and Belonging Institute. One of our early names was the Haas Institute for a Fair and Inclusive Society. And we really work across a wide range of areas from uh, dealing with marginalized groups from race to LGBTQ to religion to disability. And uh, what occurred to me is that all those groups, all those issues, in some ways, was really ways of um, the large society saying these groups don't fully belong. And I wanted to actually have some coherency. I felt like there was some coherency um, uh, among the different efforts, but it wasn't explicit. And so the othering, which was happening and is still happening, um, uh, was that common experience, although it took on different forms for different groups. So the one, the way uh, someone who's gay might be othered in the way someone who's black might be othered or someone who's gay and black might be othered is might be quite different than how a Latino is othered or how someone with a disability or how Native American. And so it was really trying to create a container that gave us a way of sort of understanding things at a macro level. And then the solution to Othering, as I oftentimes say, it's not saming, but belonging. Uh, so over the years, we started doing work around othering and belonging, and eventually we decided to change our name to Othering and Belonging because it was really reflect reflective of the work that we were doing in the world we were seeing. You just mentioned, um, we know that almost everyone has experienced othering at some point in their lives. So you just gave a few examples of being a Black man, um, identifying as gay. But some communities experience othering more than others. Can you give an example of what it means to be othered? Sure. So, yes, and, and there's really good work on this. Uh, part of it is, comes out of uh, Professor Susan Fiss uh, at Princeton. She has something called a stereotype content model, and it has two axes. One is how, how warm we feel toward a group, 
and the other one is uh, how competent you think they are. And with that, she creates four boxes. Uh, so if you're if you're seen as competent and people like you, that's the gold standard. Um, and then she tests different countries really to see how different populations fall in those four quarters. Uh, and it differs. Uh, so for example, uh, uh, white Christian man in the United States would more likely be in that uh, upper right-hand corner, the gold corner. That white Christian man wouldn't come out so well in Turkey or in India, right? So it's, it's really country-specific. Um, and, th- and then you have, you like people, but you don't think they're very competent. And uh, elderly people and women tend to fall in that category. And the emotion or re- response to that group is um, pity. Uh, and, um, and then you might think people are very competent, but you don't like them. The group that tends to fall in that category in the United States are Asians. We tend to think of Asians as a group, whether it's true or not, being very competent, but cold, so we don't like them. And then uh, there's the group that you don't like and you don't think they're very competent. And in some ways, that's the most disparaged group. Um, and there's a part of the brain that lights up when we see another human being. Uh, and when someone's deeply other than that far left-hand corner, uh, that part of the brain does not light up. So at an unconscious level, we don't see that person as human. And so for the person who is elderly, they're othered as well, but they're still seen as human. But for the returning um, citizen who's African-American, male, for the person who's unhoused, uh, many Americans at an unconscious level and at a policy level don't see them as fully human. So yes, the, the, uh, so there's a, a gradient of how we other people, and it matters in terms of policies and how we respond to their pain, whether we acknowledge that they have pain, or at the extreme level, whether we acknowledge that they're even human. And then the things we can do to help people move from one box to the other. So yes, it's not it's not all the same, uh, even though uh, even for the others who are close, that upper left hand corner or the lower right hand corner of those four quadrants, uh, they're st- they're still not seen as being full members. They're still not seen as really belonging, uh, even though they are seen as human. Othering is the issue, right? We notice that we other, and and um, like you mentioned, different people experience different levels, and for some, it may just be like an instant or a moment where they feel like they don't belong, versus in other cases, it becomes so deep that um, they are not seen as human. So now thinking about how to address that. I understand bridging as a practice and process to move towards belonging. Can you explain what in this context it means to bridge? Yes, but one thing first. First of all, there's othering which happens at an interpersonal level, and which could be transitory. You go into a store and maybe you're followed or maybe people don't serve you or maybe whatever. Uh, then you leave the store and that incident, while aggravating, it is no longer happening, right? Um, so part of what we focus on at the Institute is durable othering, which happens at multiple levels, including the state. So when the state says you don't belong, uh, it's very different than an individual saying you don't belong. Uh, when a bank says you don't belong, so you can't get a loan, uh, that's, that's uh, enduring. That's not transitory. Um, 
So when the police says you don't belong, that's different than someone not saying hello to you. So it's not just uh, different kinds. It's, it's, um, it's a hierarchy, if you will. And, and sometimes, of course, those things are stacked on top of each other. So the people who are othered by the state is also likely to be othered by individuals. Uh, and we're seeing that, I mean, historically, we've seen that with African-Americans. Historically, we've seen it with LGBTQ uh, population. Uh, historically, we've seen that with Native Americans. And now we're seeing it to some extent with Asians. Uh, so in a sense, uh, the last presidential administration, uh, in terms of othering Asians, created an environment where now everyday citizens is more likely to participate in that othering as well. Um, and so how do you address that? Because all of us, in a sense, one of the basic human needs, which is pretty universal, is we all need to belong. Um, we have a different definition of what that means. But if you think about it, we need, we're connected to each other. We're, we are born physically connected to another human being, which is pretty amazing. We will not survive unless we have a community, unless we belong somewhere. Uh, and it's not just true of humans, it's true of virtually of all mammals. Although humans in some ways are the most vulnerable and the most need of social context, social relationship uh, to belong. The way we talk about belonging is, uh, is having a right to co-create, uh, being seen as fully human, uh, being, being seen, but you're participating in the very structures and cultures that you're belonging to. Um, so how do you get there? Uh, well, what, first of all, in, for many communities, you're just there. You know, you're born into a community, you're born into a family. You don't think about, what do I have to do to belong to this family? You know, it's, it's, it's the opposite, right? You have to do something to get pushed out. Uh, but in our societies, once these us versus them, these polarizations take place, especially at the group level, uh, then we have to work to actually do something about it. And bridging is one of the phenomena that can be used. And... Bridging was made popular in uh, the larger culture by Robert Putnam in one of his more famous books called Bowling Along. He talked about social capital and how do you bridge. And bridge sort of means what the word suggests. How do you connect with someone who's apparently different on some important characteristic? So it can be how do Muslims and Jews and Hindus connect? Uh, the structures, the religions, and the physical outlay, the cultural outlay of those different religions oftentimes separate those people, those groups, and they oftentimes are in contention with each other. So how do you bridge that? And there are many different ways. I talked about group, um, if you will, group polarization. Where there's group polarization, you need uh, a group response, which means in part response from people who are influencers and leaders. Uh, because people get their cues in groups from influence and leaders. So if you're a Catholic, for example, big influencer and big leader is the Pope uh, or your bishop. Um, if you're not in a group, you may be able to do this interpersonally. Uh, so there's something called contact theory, which comes from uh, Alpert's work in 1954. He wrote a book called The Nature of Prejudice. Um, and he talked about when you put people together, or when people are together under certain conditions, and those conditions are relative, relatively equal, uh, they have a common goal, 
uh, and they in some ways are dependent on each other. And there may be a few others, that just that process creates, in a sense, a bridge, creates understanding. He was saying it reduces prejudice. If you think of prejudice as an expression of breaking, which is the opposite of breaking. Um, and so on an individual level, part of it is how do we actually see another person as fully human? I mean, that's what the bridge is actually doing. Um, you can also think about it in terms of how do two groups who are politically separated uh, learn to work together or compromise? Um, so bridging doesn't mean you agree with someone. It doesn't mean you like them. Uh, but at some level, you're willing to listen to them. At some level, you're willing to accord their rights to exist and be fully human. And there are different ways you bridge at different levels. And there are preconditions to bridge depending on what level you're in. As I suggested, if you're bridging between groups, it's going to be different than bridging between individuals. Um, and so, um, and if there's a huge power imbalance, it makes it hard to bridge, uh, sometimes if not impossible. And so we have to both think about the, the, the groups themselves, but also the conditions necessary for bridging to work. And right now, I would posit that in much of the world, and in much of the United States, the polarization that's going on is not at an individual level, it's actually at a group level. And so we need uh, sophisticated interventions. And Putnam's work, uh, for the most part, doesn't focus on group-based polarization. It focuses more on, so it's more about bringing individuals together. To add to that conversation, I know that you've written about um, two different forms of bridging, transactional bridging and transformational bridging. Can you give an example of each? Yes. So at its deep level, bridging is really recognizing another person's full humanity. It's engaging with um, uh, the person at, at the most fundamental level. Uh, there's a South African word, which is sabawanu, which means I see you. It's also been interpreted to mean uh, the divine or God in me sees the God in you. I see your humanity. Uh, at that level, when you deeply bridge with someone, uh, it's transformational, both for all the parties involved, uh, for the person being seen. Charles Taylor wrote an article called the, the Politics of Recognition. To be deeply recognized uh, is transformational, is leaning heavily toward belonging. Um, and when we fully belong, something happens. Uh, it's almost magical. Uh, and it happens for all the parties involved. So what's the result of that? Well, it depends, right? Transactional bridging is like, I want to do something. I want, I want to get something from you, from you and you want to get something from me. And we bridge just for the purpose of that transaction. Uh, and so I may recognize your humanity, but I also recognize I need you to win this election or to win this issue. So it's like a coalition. After the issue is over, our relationship is over. Uh, transactional bridging is not likely to change people fundamentally. Uh, and, uh, and so I recognize I need you for something I want. Um, and right now in the United States, in this last election cycle, there are a lot of organizers that use deep canvassing. Deep canvassing is a kind of bridging. And I've talked to a number of the organizers, and many of them are aware of that. And that kind of bridging... Bridging, again, works if you can connect with someone um, 
recognize their humanity. In a sense, when you recognize their humanity, they're more likely to recognize your humanity. When you listen to them, they're more likely to listen to, listen to you. And the research suggests that in terms of moving someone or persuading someone, deep canvassing is over 100 times more effective than traditional canvassing. Uh, with traditional canvases, I don't really take time to find out how you're doing or what you want or need or your family. I just, here's my issue. I want you to support my issue. That's traditional canvassing. It takes two to three to five minutes to canvass someone under that framework. Deep canvassing can take up to an hour. I don't walk in and say, here's my issue. It's like I walk and say, you know, good to meet you. How are you doing today? How's your family? Uh, how are you deal, dealing with COVID? What do you need? Um, I see you. Uh, and at some point I pivot and start talking about issues, but I do it lightly. But there's a tension there because deep canvassing is leaning into transformation or bridging, but it's actually also transactional because at its core, persuasion is not the same as deep bridging. Uh, because persuasion is, I'm talking to you and I'm listening to you, but really only for one reason, to change you. I'm, I said not that all that interested in you other than your boat. That's really interesting because I, I think that a lot of people are more aware and practice the transactional bridging. I think that's really common in organizing circles. And you are mentioning here this example of deep canvassing as getting close to transformational bridging, but maybe not all the way there how can organizers get to a transformational bridging? What needs to happen? Well, a couple of things. Uh, some of them may not. You know, bridging is not for everybody, right? I mean, like uh, there was uh, in the Cold War, the United States and Soviet Union were looking at each other with thousands of missiles and they never used them because they allow, uh, they recognized that they could hurt each other. They recognized that was very transactional. They uh, maybe deep down even worse than that, right? Because they each was hoping to transform the other. Uh, they weren't necessary. Their understanding was always in service of something else. It was instrumental. Uh, um, so some people may not bridge, uh, and some people may bridge just for transactional reasons. Uh, uh, but the research suggests that if you really engage in, um, like I said, deep canvassing or really listen hard, to understand someone's moral values, to understand not just their position, but what created their position, what's the underlying uh, reason for their position. Uh, one of the things that actually cause people to polarize is they, they sense the other group, not just as not human, but also as a threat. And when you can sense the other group as a threat and not human, and you act on that, we call that breaking. So breaking is the opposite of bridging. It's, it's, it's defining who the we is, we the people, very narrowly. Whereas bridging is sort of saying, well, those I don't quite understand those people, but I'm willing to try. I'm willing to listen. I'm willing to, uh, you know, for a moment, just sort of suspend my, my biases. Uh, even when we do that instrumentally, it tends to have an effect deeper than instrumentally. So what we found is that people who engage in deep canvassing, even though they may be doing it for instrumental reasons, it actually has a profound impact on them. Uh, so really paying attention to others, really listening to others, really 
some people call it empathy, but it's more than empathy. It's, it's, it's more compassion. Um, tends to have a transformational effect both on the person being listened to and the person doing the listening. I think people have to come at this sort of on their own. I mean, to some extent, people are embracing bridging because they say it works. You know, it's powerful. And it, and, and it does, right? But we have to be very careful we're not just checking the box, that we're not still ignoring people's humanity, but you have something I want. Yeah, I. Um, that's really interesting. And it also maybe sounds like if you want to do bridging, you have to focus on that and not have a secondary agenda. I, I wonder, you know, for people who may be listening who are organizers or maybe people who um, are social workers or counselors who are working with, uh, you know, individuals and the intention for bridging may come as a reason to do their job better or to push push an agenda. Is it possible to do both? Or are you saying that maybe we need to focus on seeing each other as humans before uh, inserting our agenda? I, I think it's, it's I think it's iterative. You know, I think it, it and it's complicated and it's messy. I mean, for anyone who's been in a deep, uh, intimate relationship, we know that it changes us. You know, we go into the relationship with a certain set, and it's, you know, what the change is, we can't completely predict. But to engage with another person, whether it's our husband, our wife, our kids, our best friends, uh, does something to us. Uh, and, this, and to me, that's actually quite beautiful, that in a sense, when we talk about belonging, belonging is about co-creating which means it doesn't mean I get to create. It doesn't mean you get to create. It means we do it together. And in the process, something happens that maybe neither one of us could have fully anticipated. So there's a there's a beauty in that, and there's also a vulnerability and even a risk in that. Uh, um, you know, I think while we build those bridges, while we, you know, my friend Bell Hook says that bridges are made to walk on. And by that, she means that the bridgers people who, who are building the bridge, they're likely to be mistreated. They're likely to be misunderstood, both by their group and the group they're reaching out to. What are you here for? You're not gay. Why are you, what do you care what gay people want? You know, uh, uh, and so you're, you're treated with suspicion, right? And, and, and sometimes misunderstanding. Um, and for some people, that's too hard. It's like it's too hard to be constantly being questioned. Yeah, I'm going to stick with my own group. And one of the reasons that group-to-group -group bridging is hard is because you get rewarded for being in a group. So in that context, you actually get rewarded for breaking. When you're in a group and your group is defined by its opposition to another group, well, then if you start bridging with that group, it's like, uh-uh, don't come back here after you've been with those people. Uh, and most people don't have the fortitude and and uh, the depth to actually do that. Uh, you know, I mean, people who come out gay in a church or whatever and they get kicked out, that's hard because their sense of belonging, their sense, we, we all need to belong, but we belong to different communities. And sometimes the threat, brother, if you're gay, you can't come back in this family or if you marry someone of a different race or a different, uh, you know, you're kicked out. And literally, I have friends who who are ashamed because they were falling in love or in love with someone and their family said no, and they left the person, and that haunts them. 
but they, they have that incredibly difficult choice. So one of the things is, can we lower the cost of bridging? Can we make it so you don't lose everything, whether it's your job, your friends, your family? Because uh, if we do, if we don't do that, uh, at a group level, the bridging is not going to happen. Uh, and, and that's why leadership and the stories we tell and the conditions become really important. Uh, we, not many people are going to fall on the sword. Not many people, and especially when they do it, not only may they be pushed out of their own group, right? The group that they're trying to bridge with is not going to welcome them with open arms either. <laughs> so now they're, they're really so sort of struggling. Uh, now some people can do that. Some people in leadership roles, some people have the sort of the moral and spiritual grounding to do that. But most of us can't. Uh, so can we make it so that it's not so dangerous, not so painful to try to bridge? And then the last thing I'll say is that it's not just at the individual level, it's also at the institutional level. So most of us just live our lives, right? It's like we get up in the morning and we used to go to work and send our kids off to school. We don't, we don't think about bridging. And we don't think about, huh, my kid's school is mainly people who look like me, mainly people who talk like me mainly people the same religion, mainly people the same income. So our day-to-day -day circle is actually quite limited, quite segregated. And so when we try to go beyond that, it takes a lot of work. So one of the things that structures do, structures are, in a sense, efficiency maximizers once they're in place. So it's like, how do I go to work? I go to work driving down the street the same way every day. Uh, now, maybe shorter to cut across someone's backyard, but that takes a lot of work. So can we create structural conditions where people come together? And there are a few of those, work being one of them. Work's one of the places where people are thrown together, they have a common cause, whatever the purpose of the job is, and you see people of a different age, different religion, different race. That was the ideal, one of the ideals of integrated schools, that you would bring people together from different backgrounds and they would have a common experience but we never really succeeded at that. Yeah, thank you so much for outlining that. And so it's very clear that bridging is not easy. Bridging is uncomfortable. And, but however, we keep pushing it because there are high payouts and that payout is belonging. Can you talk about what that means? And, and, and you're right, the, the, the payoff is really high. I would say belonging, and we get to be human. Uh, when we cut ourselves off from each other, we cut ourselves off from ourselves. When we cut ourselves off from each other, we cut ourselves off from possible futures. Uh, so when we are in the, really a breaking space, in, in a sort of narrow space, the space keeps getting smaller and smaller. And the world keeps getting more and more connected and calling for us is exemplified by the pandemic. The, the response to the pandemic of ground all the planes, build walls, simply don't work. We are actually interconnected. It's not just a theory, it's real, right? And so we spend literally billions of dollars trying to cut ourselves off from each other and the virus keeps spreading, right? And how does it spread? It doesn't spread magically, it's spread by human contact, by one human being far away, as far away as you can imagine, in a village in Africa. Uh, so the South African virus now is everywhere. The Brazilian virus is now everywhere. 
the English virus is now everywhere. Uh, and so in, in a sense, it's probably a misnomer called, you know, it's like we become aware of them at a certain place and we think, okay, how do we keep it there? We're mad at the Chinese, like, why didn't you keep the virus in China? You know, when they first talked about the virus in China, I said, we should get ready. And that was like in November. And it's like, how do we try to get ready? Okay, we're going to stop all the flights from China. That's, I would say, stupid or, or at least limited. Uh, and so it seems to me that part of the thing is to recognize we are on this planet together. Uh, and we don't really have many choices. We have to learn how to work together. We have to learn to, as I say, turn toward each other instead of turn on each other. And breaking is about turning on each other. Bridging is about turning toward each other and building something together. Uh, yes, it's hard, but the alternative is deadly, literally and physically. Uh, and we end up cutting ourselves off from parts of ourselves. You know, because I have an image of myself and it's like, yeah, but I have feelings and thoughts and whatever that don't fit in that image. I'm going to just put those away because they don't fit. And so again, I end up mutilating and truncating myself. Um, and, um, you know, so I think that the opposite in terms of being alive and being open and being connected uh, and then co-creating the world where we all belong, that to me is a really, really powerful and beautiful thing, even though it's sometimes scary. You've been developing this framework of belonging for many years, but recently we've seen that the term has gained prominence more broadly. This doesn't mean that people are always using it the same way, but increasingly belonging is either being added alongside other terms like diversity and inclusion, or sometimes replacing them. Can you tell us what is contained in the notion of belonging that distinguishes from inclusion, for example? Yes, a great question. Um, and as you know, our institute started off with inclusion as its touch point, and now it's belonging. Um, so one way of thinking about it, and part of it is not just the word and sort of a formal Webster's dictionary, but also how is it? How does the word live in society? So the way equity started living in society and continues to live is largely focused on disparities. And so within that framework, you identify a dominant group, uh, and then you look at where marginal groups are in relationship to the dominant groups. And that disparity becomes the, the hallmark of all your work. How do we close the disparities between the suicide rate of black men and the suicide rate of white men, which is a real issue that uh, the health fields was taking on before the pandemic. And what we saw was that the suicide rate actually did diminish substantially before the pandemic, but not because black men were killing themselves less, but because white men were killing themselves more. Uh, and say, well, is that equity? Are we, should we be happy now that everybody's killing themselves? And people say, no, that's not exa exactly what we're talking about. In addition to that, oftentimes when we focus on disparities, what we suggest is that the so-called dominant group, and maybe it is dominant, uh, needs to actually give up some of what it's got so that the less dominant group can get more. Uh, so you have people competing, groups competing over scarce resources. And the literature on this is very strong, that when people compete over scarce resources, you create a powerful environment for breaking, not bridging, because people see themselves in competition. As people see themselves 
as a threat to each other. If this group wins, my group loses. Uh, and that's not how you build bridging. Uh, and so that's how equity is practiced in much of the United States. And it's not saying that some groups deserve more, but we really want to say we actually care about all groups. We're trying to get all groups to something. Uh, and that something is not necessarily just what the so-called dominant group has. We refer to that as targeted universalism. We say we're trying to get everybody to stop killing themselves. That's the universal. The way we do that will vary because groups are situated differently. So the, the goal is universal, and that universal can be created through co-creation. But the way we get there is targeted based on how each group is situated. But now notice, we're not leaving out white men now. We're just saying they may need less to get there than, or something different than Native American women. Uh, and that everybody needs to belong. So belonging, first of all, is about everybody. It's not one group over another group. Uh, and it's not even saying, okay, we have a society that's built on the notion of white supremacy. And we want to challenge that. But we're not challenging it in a way that says white people go away. We're not challenging it in a way to say white people don't have a legitimate space and place in our new society. We're not challenging in such a way that we're saying that white people don't get to co-create. We're saying, yes, you get to co-create, that every life is of value. Every group matters. And what we really are challenging is not the whiteness necessarily in white supremacy. We're challenging the supremacy in white supremacy that we reject supremacy, we reject Christian supremacy, we reject Muslim supremacy, we reject any kind of supremacy of one group over the other, that we co-create together. And the thing that we're co-creating is new. So inclusion oftentimes is about joining something that someone else created. You join a university, it's like, okay, you're here at Berkeley, now this is how we do things at Berkeley. Well, mm, you know, some of those things you do are problematic. You know, you're welcome to come in, but be quiet and shut up. You know? uh, so inclusion is both uh, expressed oftentimes as a way of, of equity on one hand. On the other hand, is that the thing is already there. This is pretty explicit. So the conservatives, especially the national conservatives in the United States, but also in India, also in Turkey, also in Brazil, would say, the national conservatives would say, we're not an immigrant country. They say, we're a settler country. What's the difference? They say the country settled by, quote unquote, their founding fathers set the template and anyone who comes have to adjust to exactly what the settlers put down. And not just conservatives. I mean, Arthur Schlesinger, he talked about this when uh, writing a book about, and so the notion of the way we think about assimilation, it's like, okay, you can come to the United States, but I'm not learning your name. Here's a set of, a set of names you can choose from. You know, uh, I'm not learning your religion. Here's a set of practices you can do. I'm not all the work. Okay, you're a woman joining a, a law firm that historically has been male. You're welcome. But our rules are set down, and those rules are not just rules. Those rules are gendered because they were created in the absence of women's voice. Uh, and co-creation would say, yeah, women are joining, but they also, you know, and there's some recognition that something's there already, but now I'm coming in, 
I'm coming in as a full person. Uh, and, and it's actually even reflected in the structure to give you one last example. They found folks go to go to in the old days, right? When you go to sporting events and there's halftime at the basketball game, you go to the you go to the bathroom and the women are in a long line because the bathroom don't have very many toilets. They have urinals. Well, women can't use urinals. So the structure of the sporting event is gendered. And it's in a sense saying, you don't really belong here. Yeah, you can come and pay. You can have your popcorn and your beer and your hot dog if you eat those things. But this is actually a structure that was designed implicitly, if not explicitly, with men in mind. Uh, and now in California, you can't build large public events with just urinals. California said that's not right. And some people say, well, you know, what's wrong with that? So co-creating would say the groups who are joining, we're a country of immigrants. And each immigrant population that comes in get to come in and say, you know what, let's rethink some of these things. Let's co-create together. Let's create an America where I'm not a guest, where I really belong. So then it maybe sounds like um, organizations or groups who are really wanting to do the work need to move beyond just bringing people in the room. But once the people are in the room, have conversations with them about how they can recreate the space. And it's, it's not even just the people, right? Because, you know, you can have a corporation just, uh, we talked about diversity, you can have half your board be black and female. Uh, but the black community is big enough and diverse enough, you can make, you can get black people who have actually very little relationship to the actual black community. You don't want just black people in the room. You want something else. You're saying you want to be embedded and connected to the black, to the Latino, to the Latinx, to the uh, Native American, to the Asian, to the, you want to be connected to those communities. Um, and so one of the things is like to have people who are not just in the room, because of their race and gender and sexual orientation, but also related to those various communities and have a real voice. And to have a real voice, not just affect those communities, but affect all communities. So you have to go beyond diversity uh, and, and, uh, and recognize we're not talking about just individual representation. We're talking about voice, we're talking about capacity, we're talking about connections with the larger world. Thank you so much for um, outlining that. And I really hope that people who are listening do begin to engage that work because bridging is not simple and it's not linear. How can listeners or people who are doing this work, how do you know when bridging is working? What are signs that people should look out for? It's a process. Like all processes, it's going to be iterative. I mean, it's going to redefine itself uh, over time. But bridging, you, you know, it's working uh, if it's in service of belonging. And bridging is not winner or losers. And some people would say this is naive because there has to be winner and losers. There has to be in groups and out groups. Bridging rejects that. It say, how do we create a society where we all belong? Uh, and what's what do we need to do to make that real? Um, and at least at a starting point, our history and data counts. So sometimes people get confused. They say, well, you know, at, at Google, there was a thing of an engineer saying, well, you know, there are not many women engineers because women don't like math, right? Uh, and it became a big controversy. And he was arguing that people have different capacities. And at that point, he's right. But the, the research on inequality is done at the individual level, which might mean that I'm, I may be better at math than my sister, 
Uh, but I'm not better at math than women. Group-based inequality is different than individual-based inequality. And so you know you have bridging, you know you have moving toward belonging when everyone has a say, a real say, when people really do get to co-create. You know, I've thought for years, years often in California and other places, there are these fights about affirmative action. You know, like, should we let in more blacks? Should we let in more uh, Latinx? Uh, what does that mean for Asians and whites? Uh, and we have these rules. We have these mechanisms for selecting people. There's a lot of problems with that because, first of all, um, there was a couple of years ago, there were 900 African-Americans who sued the UC system, and they had perfect grades, 4.0s. And their test scores were high, and they didn't get in. And the reason they didn't get in is because University of California's at Berkeley's entering class tends to have a grade point average of 4.2 or 4.3. Four is perfect. What's a 4.2 or 4.3? It means you had AP classes. Uh, and because in those schools where Blacks and Latinx were the majority of students, they didn't have AP classes. Those students had done everything they possibly could at their school, and they still could not make the cut. Uh, now, Berkeley's trying to do stuff with that and, uh, and, and, and be more inclusive and be more not just inclusive, but belonging. Um, and so but those are public discussions. Uh, and, and the thing I've been thinking about, so when people sue and say, you know, my son or daughter um, didn't get in because they were white or because they were Asian and they uh, and they're not... Uh, and we should keep the black Latin next to it. Now, I would say, why are you suing for affirmative action? Why aren't you suing for us to build more universities? Uh, throughout most of the, the 90s and early 2000s, we were building prisons, but not school. California has been, been growing. We have this increasing number of bright, energetic, highly motivated students, and we're saying a scarcity. It's a planned scarcity. There's no scarcity in prisons. Uh, that's a commitment. That's a social decision saying, we're going to build more prisons, but not more schools. And yes, yeah, so you did great in school and you're ready to go on, but you can't come to Berkeley. Uh, so I think that there are different ways of approaching this. And we're not trying to, from my perspective, we're not trying to say, yes, keep the Asian student out or the white student out. It's like, no, this is our future. If someone says, you have, we have too many bright students. It's like, we can never have too many bright students. We can never have too many bright students. Uh, yeah, so uh, I think the whole thing is frame wrong. And so someone out there <laughs> listening should think about suing the public university system for not serving the public by constraining the number of seats available to these bright students. Yeah, that. Um, that's a really interesting way of thinking. And I hope that our listeners, when they are having these conversations, are reframing it. And I agree with you that these other terms of uh, disparities and equity do focus you to compare yourself to other groups. And that comparison creates the divisions that become problematic and, and are addressing the incorrect issue. Um, I want to thank you so much for all your time. I just want to end. Um, with one last question, which is what advice you have for people who may be new to bridging? 
Well, a couple of things. First of all, I, I appreciate you doing this, and, and I appreciate all the work that the Institute is doing, other than the Belong Institute, but others around the country. Uh, now there's a lot of work on bridging, uh, and it's still iterative. That means we're redefining it. Uh, but I would say, especially starting with the leadership and with funders, fund bridging, fund these experiments. There are all these efforts. There are people having dinners. There are people having uh, meetings. There are people having book clubs. There are uh, people trying to have the conversation where they connect with groups that they don't run into in their daily life. That's already a, already a problem. How are we organizing neighborhoods so we so that they're, they are racially, economically, and, and nationally segregated? We need to create more containers where people can come together. Um, and, and we need to know, to be clear, that we're trying to create something for everybody. And it, it would be awkward and wonky because we're fighting a system that's been largely about breaking and segregation. So, so uh, go visit our website, hang out on there a while. We have a couple of uh, nice articles. Uh, Greater Goods Science Center at Berkeley, they have something. Um, there's the Weaver, there, there's uh, um, Welcoming America. There are groups all over now, but they're small by comparison to the problem. Um, and we need to demand of our quote unquote leaders as we become leaders, that they, we're leading, that they lead for everybody. That they lead, for, that, that we want a world where we all belong, where we all belong. Uh, and by that, I mean all, not just in the United States, uh, but all over the world. How do we actually create, and that has to be our goal. Uh, and so um, it's hard, but also I think it's deeply rewarding. And uh, there are really a lot of wonderful people out there uh, engaged with this work in their daily lives, and it should be lifted up. That was Professor John Powell. Thank you so much for your time. And to our listeners, please check out our other podcasts where we discuss belonging and bridging in more detail. For more resources and curriculums on belonging and bridging, please go to belonging.berkeley.edu slash b for b that is slash letter B, number four, letter B. Until next time.